welcome to the Ada Lovelace Day podcast. I'm Sue Charman-Anderson, and this is the delayed episode 20 from December. This month, Dr. Carola Schoenlieb explains how she uses maths to improve the analysis of X-ray images. And we're talking to Hilary Harper-Abernethy about the incredibly influential astronomer Caroline Herschel. We're also taking a look at the invention of the laser phaco probe, a device for treating cataracts that was invented by Dr. Patricia Bath. This month, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Carola Schoenlieb, who is a reader in Applied and Computational Analysis at the University of Cambridge. Hi, Carola. Hi, Sue. So, Carola, um, you're an applied mathematician. What is it that you apply mathematics to? So I work on uh, developing mathematical methods for imaging, which encapsulates all the way from image analysis uh, methods like segmentation of images to processing of images such as denoising to uh, reconstructing images from indirect measurements as they appear in biomedical imaging such as tomography or things like that. I work all the way from coming up with mathematical formalizations, with mathematical models to solve certain imaging tasks, to the analysis of these models in terms of are they actually, you know, are they solvable, are they giving us the type of solutions that we want, to the numerical solution of those, so the, really the implementation of these methods on the computer. The images that I'm looking at come from biomedical imaging, from, you know, various scales of imaging, from imaging, you know, looking at whole body uh, magnetic resonance tomography uh, scans to molecular level of imaging cells with microscopy, go to remote sensing, I have collaborations with people in forest conservation where we look at airborne imaging data of forests, go to arts and humanities, archaeology as well, where we look at uh, digital restoration of paintings and manuscripts and things like that. So that's, that's my bread and butter. Um, that's a really exciting range of, of applications. Um, can you kind of talk me through one of them? Give me an example of the kind of work that you do. One image processing tasks, which appears all over the place has to do with the fact that most of the images that we are looking at or the imaging data that we are starting with contains noise. And in order to analyze, to make quantifications based on imaging data, to interpret images in a better way or just to have a visually pleasing uh, image to look at, one task is to remove the noise from images. And so this is an extremely basic image analysis processing task. It's, as I said, all over the place, but it's also one of the most difficult ones. And the reason is that you need to find a mathematical formalism that can differentiate what is the noise in the image and what is really the content that you want to preserve. So denoising is difficult. One of the very, you know, quite broad and standard approaches to do this is, for instance, Gaussian filtering is a filtering technique which basically says the noise in the image is a, is the random highly oscillatory component. When when we think about that in frequency space, it lives in the frequency space in the very high frequencies. So one way to filter out the noise is to get rid of these high frequencies. And so this is basically what Gaussian filtering is doing. If you have encountered the heat equation before, the heat equation is an equation which diffuses an initial, let's say, heat distribution, which in our case is not a heat distribution, but is a distribution of intensity values in the image. It diffuses those, and this diffusion you can again think is an averaging process, and this averaging process is again you can think of that as getting rid of high frequencies. If you have high frequencies, high oscillations, if you're averaging them, it means that you're making out of these high frequencies, uh, you're approximating them with a low frequency. And uh, so that is a very common approach because it's extremely simple. Uh, one of the issues is how much do you average, which has to do, in, if you think of Gaussian filtering perspective, with the width of the filter that, you are, that you're convolving your image with. 
uh, has to do with, when you think of the heat equation, how long you are solving the heat equation for. The heat equation is an evolution equation. So depending on when you start with your initial heat distribution or your intensity distribution of the gray values in the image, how long are you doing this averaging process? How, how often do you iterate this averaging process? Uh, so when do you stop? This is one issue. So when do you decide you have, you know, there is no more noise in the image? And the other issue is this is a filtering technique that is killing all the high oscillations. And high oscillations are sometimes not just noise, but if you think about uh, boundaries uh, of objects, so the regions in the image where the object uh, interfaces background, this is where my intensity function, the gray values, are jumping significantly. So they might jump from white, which let's say this is 255 as an intensity value, to zero, which is black. Let's say you just have a black and white image. And so that is also a highly oscillatory component. That is also why these very simple techniques, they are not just killing the noise, but they're also blurring out edges, edges of objects, these interfaces between uh, objects and background. And that is something we don't really want. And so one of the things that a lot of mathematical effort, uh, and in particular also my effort, went into is to develop similar kind of motivated by the heat equation, similar type of mathematical techniques based on partial differential equations, which are, you know, the heat equation is one example of, but that are more nonlinear that take into account the structure that you have in the image, which means, for instance, that you would diffuse still to kill a highly oscillatory component, but you wouldn't diffuse everywhere in the same way. So your averaging process takes into account if there are significant changes in the image, like edges, you wouldn't average as much as if you would be in areas where nothing much is happening, you know, where your intensity function doesn't change a lot. And this highly oscillatory component is the only thing that changes. I'm kind of used to processing photographs um, on my computer, and I have to admit, it had never occurred to me that maths was involved. You just click a button and it happens. So, so how hard is it? Because for humans, it's incredibly easy for us to look at a photograph and say, well, this is the foreground and that's the background and here are some edges. How hard is it to get a computer to do that? And, and why is that important? Yeah. So I actually sympathize, you know, when you when you visually look at an image, it's very easy for us to understand what is going on, to decide this is, you know, this is an object, this is a human, and this is the background, this is grass or a sky or whatever it is. So it's very easy for us to understand that, but that also tells you how complex we as a human uh, can perceive the world, how, how complex this process is. And to do this in an automated fashion, which is what you want to do when you do, when you are developing mathematical methods, which can, you know, you just write down an equation or a formula that should do it. It's very hard to do this with a simple mathematical model. And so when you think about edges, and again, going back to the, to the intensity function, as I said, you know, edges in an image uh, are places where the intensity function is changing significantly. And so when you think about that, and you think about change of a function, you think about, okay, so this brings you to the notion of derivative of a function. So maybe these are places where the derivative of this image function is very large. This is a, one of the ways to do edge detection is to look for the places in the image where the derivative of this image function is very large and to say where, where it's large, this is where there is an edge and where it's small, this is where, you know, where, where we are inside an object or where we are in the background or something like that. And so that is one of the, you know, driving factors or one of the main principles that is used in image segmentation and one type of image segmentation. Why is it hard? Because we are in the real world, things are not perfect. Um, if, for instance, the contrast in your image, if there is a lack of contrast in your image, it also means that this significance that the derivative is large versus it's not large might be, might be not so significant. So this difference between large and not large. Also noise, we talked about noise before. Noise can also uh, irritate this process because high oscillations would also have large derivatives. So you somehow have to smooth this out before you want to detect the really significant edges in the image as the ones with large derivatives. 
And so this is really extremely hard to find this systematically on a, uh, if you want that to be applicable to a wide range of images. And then, you know, there are different techniques to do segmentation. You know, edges are one, but sometimes if you want to segment an, an object in an image, it might not have a very clear edge. And so other things come in segmentation with in terms of texture. Maybe there is a different texture inside of the image than outside. Uh, segmentation just based on average color. Maybe the average color inside the object is different to outside. Different types of machine learning techniques where you are saying, well, you know, there are not always clear edges between object and background, and there is not always an average color that I know of, which is, you know, which is the one inside and outside. But maybe I can look at enough examples of where I know what the segmentation should be and learn from these examples. So uh, instead of coming up with a handcrafted model, like the one where I'm looking for large derivatives, I'm just saying I'm starting with a kind of black box approach, a machine learning approach, and I'm learning how to segment from looking at enough examples. So you mentioned earlier about medical imaging. How do you apply this kind of work and mathematics to medical imaging? One big component in medical imaging is that a lot of the images that clinicians are looking at, that radiologists are looking at and so on, they are not images originally. So when they come out of a a computer tomograph or of a magnetic resonance tomograph, this machine is not giving you an image directly. So this is what I mentioned at the very beginning. One of the things we are working on is to reconstruct images from indirect measurements. And this, you know, this tomography examples are typical instances of such indirect measurements that you're starting out with. So to just give you an example, in X-ray, for instance, uh, or what a computer tomograph, let's say, is measuring is uh, it sends X-rays through your body. So you somehow want to visualize what is inside of your body. So what it's doing is it's sending X-rays. The X-ray is entering your body, let's say, from one side. It's exiting from the other side. Let's assume uh, everything is perfect and this is just a line that it's traveling along. And so on the other end, where the X-ray comes out again, there is a detector which, me- which measures the energy this X-ray still has. So you know what the energy of the X-ray is when you send it out, and then you measure the energy when it comes out at the other end. When the X-ray is traveling through your body, depending on which type of materials it hits, bone, tissue, air, whatever, it experiences different levels of attenuation depending on the type of material bone is for instance more attenuating than air of course or tissue which is like a watery structure let's say and so what you're really measuring at the other end is the energy attenuation that this x-ray has gone through through your body and um, you can formulate in mathematical terms uh, in terms of an integral over the energy attenuation along the line that the x-ray took through your body. And so these line integrals are also called, the, uh, if, you, if you now assume that you have acquired, that you have sent x-rays through the body from all different directions that you can think of in three-dimensional space, you get a different parametrization of the different densities of bone and tissues and different materials inside of your body. And this parametrization is called the Radon transform of a function. So instead, so the function that you're interested in is the different, you know, bone and tissue and so on that you want to visualize inside the body. But, but what you're measuring are line integrals of this density. And so one extremely, you know, challenging and difficult problem uh, is, uh, and where you can see that mathematics is there, is how to go from these measurements, from these tomography measurements, back to an image back to the function itself, the intensity function that should visualize your bones. And so all of this, again, is complicated because so there is a mathematical theory which tells you, you know, which asks the question, can you reconstruct the function from its line integrals? And this goes back to an Austrian mathematician called Radon, uh, much, you know, long before actually the invention of computer tomography, which is another fascinating topic I'm not going into. But you can see that, you know, pure mathematics actually, which was in this case a very pure mathematical question, had a huge impact later. 
but it's it's complicated by the fact again that things are not perfect you're not you, you you're not collecting x-rays from all you know different angles that you could think of you have a limited number of angles that are being collected you don't actually want to collect x-rays from so many different angles because you don't want to radiate the patient too much and then there is noise there is always noise so all of this gets more complicated and this is one example in biomedical imaging where mathematics is really at the core to go from the measurements to something that the clinician can actually look at there's quite a, a broad range of applications for this kind of image processing and i know you've done some work with pied flycatchers um can you tell me a little bit about that so this was a segmentation problem. So it's a collaboration that we started with a zoologist in Cambridge who came to us with a database of photographs. And these photographs showed pied flycatcher birds, she holding her, so her hand holding the pied flycatcher bird, some kind of a measurement device like a ruler that she also held in the same hand and then her taking the picture with the other hand so lots of pictures like this she came to us with the hypothesis that the male birds of this species they have a, a white blaze on their forehead she said that there is a hypothesis in the community in her community that the size of this blaze uh, relates with, or correlates in a way with the amount of reproduction. So if you if you if you want with their sexual attractiveness or something like that, or you know how 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 much do they reproduce? So she said there is no real good way at the moment that people are using in order to quantify this, how to actually measure the size of this blaze. You know you have to photograph, you have to blaze. Uh, you have a measurement device in this photograph. So how do you go and make out of this, a, you know, a, a size in terms of square centimeters or something like this that this place has? And so what we did was we developed kind of image analysis pipeline, which first of all uh, segmented uh, automatically the place on the uh, on the forehead of these flycatcher birds and again this was challenging it was not just an edge detection approach which worked because this this blaze the bird has feathers and these feathers are kind of fractal so they there's a lot of texture and so the boundary of these blazes was also very oscillatory and very fractal so there wasn't a clear edge that you could detect so we really had to do something else which was based on different texture and color features that we used in order to detect and segment displays and then as a second step we had to out of you know once we segmented the blaze we could count the amount of pixels that were inside of this blaze but then we had to relate this to a physical size and for that we used the ruler and we detected the scale on the ruler and used that to say so and so many pixels are uh, one millimeter or 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 something like that and um yeah, and so, I mean, unfortunately, the uh, result was that uh, the hypothesis is probably not true. <laughs> so it was a kind of negative answer, but it was an extremely exciting project. And in fact, what was what is for me even more exciting is that a very similar type of segmentation technique we used in a, in a extremely different application, which was uh, in this forest conservation collaboration that I have which I mentioned at the beginning, to, in this case, not segment blazes, but to segment trees and uh, uh, trees uh, from airborne imaging data. It's kind of amazing to me that you're using similar techniques across sort of just denoising and medical imaging and bird conservation and forest conservation. Um, and I had never really considered the impact that maths could have in these kinds of areas. How did you end up working on these sorts of problems? Yeah, so that's an interesting one because when I started when I started my PhD, I initially didn't work on image processing. So I started out working uh, on partial differential equations, 
where you know I gave you this example of a partial differential equation, which was the heat equation. But I worked on a, another partial differential equation, which is called the Kahn-Hilliard equation. This was my first, uh, you know, scientific paper that I've written. My first project that I worked on in the, uh, in my PhD is to look at this Kahn-Hilliard equation. And this Kahn-Hilliard equation again, has nothing to do from the outset with image processing, but it was actually uh, uh, proposed by Kahn and Hilliard uh, to model uh, the phase separation and coarsening of binary alloys. So what I mean by that is think about uh, two different types of materials, let's say two different types of metals. When you heat them up to, for, to a certain temperature, they mix, and then you kind of cool them down and they start separating. And this equation... Uh, is a model for this separation process between these different, let's say, metals, between these two alloys, and also subsequently, so they start separating, and then they start this coarsening process, which is that smaller regions of the same metal kind of merge together and build larger regions. So this Kahn-Hilliard equation is really this type of model, and my first paper was on a particular mathematical theory related to this equation, that had to do with the stability of solutions of this equation. And um, at the same time, uh, a colleague of mine uh, from Los Angeles, from UCLA, published a paper where she used this same equation, the Kahn-Hillard equation, for image uh, in painting, where in painting, image in painting, is basically an interpolation task. Think of you have you have an image and part of this image is damaged. So you have an area where all the, the image intensity information got lost. And so what you want to do is based on the intact part of the image, you want to restore what has been lost in this damaged region. Um, so restoration is one example. The other one, and that's ex exactly the same uh, you know, abstract task, is when you want to create special effects. You have an image and you select an object that you want to remove from this image. Then this object that you want to remove takes on the role of the damaged area that I talked about before. And you want to replace this object again by something that is suggested from the rest of the image. So it's a kind of interpolation. You interpolate uh, if you want you interpolate color values around this area either it's the damaged area or this object you want to remove you interpolate it in order to remove it to remove this object for instance and so she used the Kahn-Hillard equation to do this yeah and that was really fascinating for me and that's when I got started on image analysis and image processing and I never stopped ever since so and it seems to me as well because we Again, there's this sort of stereotype in, in maths of, you know, it's a terribly lonely profession and it's you and a whiteboard. Um, but it sounds like your work really um, requires a lot of collaboration with people from a wide range of, of different disciplines. Is, is that the case? Yes. So it's absolutely so to collaborate with other, you know, both with other mathematicians, but also with researchers from other disciplines is really essential in mathematical imaging. To collaborate with, with other type of mathematicians is essential because uh, different mathematical areas are important to solve these imaging tasks. So I talked about, you know, that we, are, that, we, that we need modeling, we need to come up with a mathematical model, we need to analyze this, uh, and then we need to numerically solve this. So lots of different aspects come in when you think about noise and the randomness of noise. This is statistical. So there is statistics, there is, there is functional analysis, there is optimization, computational analysis, there is partial differential equations, there is machine learning. So, you know, all of this is not that one person can know very deeply everything about one of these mathematical fields. So it's essential to collaborate in order to make really big advances. And then if you want to have an impact in applications, you really have to collaborate with a person who works in this application. Because you need the domain-specific knowledge in order to come up with the right model to solve this problem that they have. So it's really, and that's really the fun part, I think. I really, you know, you still, as a mathematician or as any kind of researcher, you need also the time to sit down and think for yourself and to, you know, write things down. And, and you know, you just, you, I mean, you need to have this time as well. But you also, is essential, the, these times when you stand 
together in front of the blackboard and you discuss and you you go I don't know I go to our university hospital and I meet the clinicians there and they explain to me the type of images they have they explain to me what are the lesions that they see in these CT images and why do they classify them as lesions and why not you know all these things are so important um and yeah, make it exciting, I think. So if someone's listening to this podcast and they think, you know, this sounds like a really awesome career, what advice would you give them in terms of like, how do you get into this area? Well, first of all, study mathematics. I mean, I, re- I really think I really enjoyed my uh, my undergraduate studies, my graduate studies. So study mathematics, it's, it's very fascinating. Whatever you do, uh, you can go in so many different directions. It opens up so many different things, you know. So study mathematics, go in, you know, really let yourself be, you know, involved in this whole mathematical area. Uh, so mathematical abilities are important. What is important also is to keep, being flexible so you know you are you're studying mathematics as an undergraduate when I did that I would have never thought that I'm going to end up looking at lesions and CT images yeah so to be brave enough to go into different areas if you if I you know I did my PhD on partial differential equations uh, but at some point I realized I need to, you know, catch up on my statistics uh, knowledge. I need to catch up on harmonic analysis or whatever, you know. So you you need to be able to be flexible and and learn about different things along the way. Be open to new ideas. Um, and I think what is also important is, as I said, collaboration is essential to develop good communication skills. Starting discussing with a mathematician from a different area from a different mathematical area requires some effort to uh, start speaking the same language and to start understanding each other and then with another discipline is of course even you know is an even bigger step often yeah so i think these are the qualities be brave and be passionate about what you're doing so um what is happening for you next what are you looking forward to one of the things that I'm uh, extremely excited about at the moment, uh, fascinated, well, excited, fascinated, and also uh, a bit worried sometimes is this revolution that we are seeing at the moment with machine learning and deep neural networks and all these kind of things. So I'm very fascinated by what these uh, deep neural networks, by what deep learning can actually do. And then, so this is on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm coming, you know, from the story that I was telling you, you might uh, appreciate that I'm coming from from a background where I'm developing these handcrafted mathematical models. This is really, you know, this is really what what I've been doing. So I'm trying to understand what is important in images, what are the structures that we want to use to solve a particular problem, and, may, and, and turning those into mathematical equations. And there are advantages uh, and disadvantages to this. And I think uh, to both areas, you know, to the, math- the mathematical models are really exciting because they're very generalizable. We talked about pied flycatcher birds and uh, tree segmentation. And really an extremely similar model has been used. They are rigorous, so they, they give you guarantees. So you know how robust they are, how robust are they when you change, you know, when you when you're when you're putting an image into this analysis pipeline whatever this analysis pipeline is let's say a classification task you know you know that if you change your input this image a little bit let's say you flip one pixel or whatever um, then you know also that the results let's say in this case your classification will be very close so it will not be far off from the classification of this original image so all these kind of things you know about mathematical models, but then they are limited because they are handcrafted. On the other hand, in machine learning and deep neural networks, these are highly parameterized models. You, you, you're, you're basically starting without a model. So you just start with a million of parameters and uh, you are learning the model based on these million of parameters. You're learning, learning the model by looking at it enough examples and this is what makes these deep neural networks so extremely powerful because they can adapt to imaging data so well Uh, but then they don't at the moment it's not understood how they work it's not understood 
how stable they are. In fact, there are a lot of examples where you see problems with stability. You have these adversarial uh, errors that uh, people are, are talking about and that you see a lot. Um, and there is also a lack of generalizability, of course, because you, the net, the, let's say your network can only deal with images that it has seen in the set of examples that you have shown to it, or at least close enough images, you know, to to this type of examples that that it has learned its its model from. So I think what what I and what a lot of people in the mathematics community in this mathematical imaging community are quite excited about at the moment is to find ways in the middle, to find ways first of all ways how to explain some of the things that are happening with deep neural networks, but then also how to combine those with really genuine mathematical modeling. And, you know, sometimes we really have ideas of what the mathematical model should be. When I talked about the Radon transform, you know, it's clear that the, this, this process from image to measurements, how, how an image to, uh, is related to the measurements that the computer tomograph is giving me, this is the physical model that we understand. So why should we throw it away? And so these kind of things, how to combine these two worlds to in the end, you know, the vision is to get uh, to get a framework where we can take advantage, where, where, where we have only the advantages of both worlds together. That is something that I'm very passionate and very excited about at the moment. That sounds fantastic. It's been really fascinating um, for me to learn more about uh, how maths actually is applied in areas that I just would not have expected. So thank you so much, Carola, for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sue. Thanks to Carola for explaining the important role that maths plays in image processing. You can find out more about Carola on our website at findingada.com slash podcast. Our podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of ARM, our exclusive semiconductor industry sponsor. You can find out more about ARM's energy-efficient microprocessor technology on their website at arm.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at Arm Holdings. Now it's time for our invention of the month. This month, we're looking at a machine that has improved the lives of countless people around the world, an invention that restores sight to people whose vision is impaired or even completely lost. Now, most of us have heard of cataracts. Indeed, most of us will either know someone who has had them or will experience them ourselves at some point in our lives. A cataract occurs when your eye's lens clouds over, making vision blurry at best. In the worst case, cataracts can result in blindness. Your lens is made up mostly of water and neatly arranged proteins. If those proteins start to tangle, they form clumps that prevent light from passing through, and so your vision blurs. The history of cataract surgery goes back hundreds of years, but by the 1950s, medical advances made it possible to replace a clouded lens with an artificial one. In the late 60s, the technique of phacoemulsification was developed, using ultrasound to pulverise the damaged lens, allowing it to then be sucked out of the eye and replaced. At around the same time, Dr Patricia Barth was an intern at Harlem Hospital. She finished her training at New York University, where she was the first African-American resident in ophthalmology. Barth noticed that black patients had double the rate of blindness as whites, primarily due to a lack of access to appropriate healthcare. Determined to do something about such an appalling situation, she combined public health, community medicine and clinical ophthalmology into a new discipline, community ophthalmology. Trained volunteers visited senior centres and daycare programmes, testing for cataracts, glaucoma and other conditions that could threaten vision. In the early 80s, Bath began to work on a new device to remove cataracts. The technology she needed to realise her idea didn't exist yet though and it took her five years to complete the research and testing needed to finalise the device in 1986. Bath's laser phaco probe uses a laser instead of ultrasound to vaporise the lens, 
the remains of which are washed away as liquid flows through an irrigation line and is extracted through an aspiration tube. A replacement lens can then be inserted. Bath patented her idea in 1988, becoming the first African-American woman to receive a medical patent. The laser phaco probe is now in use around the world to quickly and almost painlessly treat cataracts. It can also be used to treat diseased corneas, allowing them to be removed and replaced by artificial corneas in a process known as keratoprosthesis. Using this process, Bath has restored sight to several people who have been blind for over 30 years. In 1976, Bath and three colleagues founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness, which works to ensure that everyone can access eye care, regardless of their economic circumstances. The AIPB has worked in countries around the world, in South America, Africa, Asia and Europe, as well as in the US, to promote blindness prevention and to treat eye disease. Cataracts are one of the leading causes of blindness worldwide, and about half of us can expect to experience them by the time we are 80. So if one day you end up having laser surgery for cataracts, you might want to say a little thank you to Dr. Patricia Bath. So this month I'm joined by Hilary Harper Abernethy, who is an amateur astronomer and also interested in the history of astronomy. Hello, Hilary. Hello, Sue. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to talk to you. So who are you going to be telling us about this month? I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be an astronomer. If she is an astronomer. She's one of the first people to ever be paid as a scientist. And her name is Caroline Herschel. And you will probably recognize the, the surname uh, because she was a sister of William Herschel, who discovered the planet Uranus. But Caroline was far, far more than just William's assistant, uh, which has been pretty much her historical claim to fame. Yeah, so definitely just scanning through her Wikipedia entry, there's a lot of focus on her, her being his assistant. But she did a lot more than just sort of organise his notes. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, for a start, she devised a system for recording the notes um, and greatly enhanced uh, the, the, the records of stars. She almost had an intuitive arrangement with him in terms of his observing and her ability to then notate what he observed. She was also a passionate astronomer in her own right. When William wasn't there and often he was away for months on end, Caroline continued with her own observation, discovering her first comet when she was um, alone at home. So she was very much known as uh, a comet sweeper. She systematically scans the heavens um, and recorded several comets. She's got lots of discoveries to her own credit. It sounds like very methodical, meticulous sort of work. It hugely is. I think both their personalities suited that sort of work, it's fair to say. Um, and I think it was her absolute attention to detail and intense concentration. And for both of them, their ability to just kind of ignore their own comforts, to, to focus on the job on hand that enabled them to be so uh, prolific in their discoveries. And, and a lot of that was down to actually having state-of-the-art equipment. They were William particularly was uh, an excellent telescope maker and, and lens maker. So they had the best equipment. They had dark skies in the way that we can only dream of nowadays. And they had the opportunity to, to do that. But that's not how they started off in life. Oh, so how did they start? They were born in Hanover in what is now Germany, but Caroline was born in 1750. William was about 11 years older, and they were the children of a musician. And William grew up to be a mutant, to follow his father's tradition and be a military musician. And he moved to England initially as a, an organist, a player at the, in Bath, which was a very, very happening, fashionable town at the time. Um, and it was his desire and need to have an assistant that enabled Caroline to eventually join him. And in many ways, William saved Caroline from a life of domestic drudgery. Um, it was very much a kind of Cinderella rags to riches sort of story, uh, which is why I find it so fascinating in many ways. Because it was definitely not 
a common pastime for a woman in that era to be having anything to do with science. Absolutely. And in many ways, she was absolutely the first person, woman to ever be paid as a scientist, one of the first people to ever be paid as a scientist. And she was also one of the first women to be awarded a Royal Society Gold Medal um, alongside uh, Mary Wollstonecraft at the same time. But um, fascinating, fascinating lady. Um, in, Caroline faced quite a bit of childhood adversity. She was born to, as I said, her father Isaac. Her mother was a kind of a social climbing, not terribly literate lady. And Caroline was everything she wouldn't want in a daughter. Um, Caroline contracted smallpox when she was four, so was disfigured by that. Um, and then at the age of 10, she developed typhoid, so she never grew beyond the age of 10. So at her tallest, she was four foot three. So this tiny, tiny, quite plain lady, quite feisty, clearly intelligent, but uneducated, um, was basically used as a domestic servant because her beloved father told her to take against all sorts of marrying, saying, as I was neither rich or handsome, it was not likely that anyone would make me an offer till perhaps when far advanced in life, some old man might take me for my good qualities. But I think she pretty much decided against marriage early on, if that was her only option. But her, her mother recognised that she had an industrious servant. And in fact, when William eventually brought her over to England, he had to pay his mother for a maid to take Caroline's place. So, so she had a bit of a rough time um, in Hanover, particularly after her father's death. So William was very much her saviour. And it in many ways perhaps explains her devotion to him. Yeah, and definitely because of the, the issues around status and uh, what a married woman could and couldn't do, um, it, a marriage would have uh, very likely ended her astronomical career. She, she's known for her comets. She, she discovered eight comets between 1786 and 1797, which was um, a feat that most people would actually probably give a limb for nowadays to be able to, to discover those. She also embarked on a project of cross-referencing and correcting the catalogue that had been produced by John Flamsteed, who was the first astronomer royal, and it was his life's work. It took him decades, um, and it was published just after his death. So she added another 560 stars to that and also corrected some of his observations because of her uh, interest and knowledge of spherical trigonometry. They were able to record things so much more accurate, accurately. Um, and in many ways, that ended her own researches. That was kind of a, quite a, an intense work until many years after William's death and she returned to Hanover. She then started to collate a collection of nebulae for his son John, who was also an astronomer. And she completed a catalogue of two and a half thousand nebulae. And in 1828, she was awarded the Royal Astronomical Society gold medal for that piece of work, which was a hugely impressive feat and incredibly meticulous. Yeah, it, it, it's very hard to wrap our head around how long that must have taken her because. You know, completing a catalogue doesn't necessarily sound glamorous. Um, and and the, the works that went into that, certainly, I cannot imagine that that was glamorous. I imagine that it was cold and, and hard work. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But she did have a long life in which to do it. She was born in 1750, as I said. She died just two months short of her 98th birthday, which is a phenomenal age span for, for any age, but certainly um, for 1700s, 1800s. So um, she had a very, very long and busy life and was feisty almost up until the end um, and kind of entertained by the King of Prussia uh, right up to uh, a couple of years before her death. So, so her sort of final years, you know, we, we normally think of, people slowing down and uh, uh, you know taking up more relaxing uh, hobbies but um, she carried on with sort of looking at constellations and comets. Absolutely until her sight failed her really and she was well in her 90s at that point. Her nephew John went to visit her in Hanover 
Um, and he describes her, this was in 1832, she was 83 years old. She runs about the town with me and skips up her two flights of stairs. In the morning till 11 or 12, she's dull and weary. But as the day advances, she gains life and is quite fresh and funny at 10 p.m. And sings all rise and even dances. So imagine this like, tiny, tiny 83-year-old lady dancing and uh, throughout the night. Um, typical astronomer who tend not to sleep during the nighttime. Very difficult to do astronomy if you're asleep. Yes. <laughs> and definitely she sounds like not a morning person, which I, I relate to. What is it about Caroline that resonates with you? Why do you find her story so fascinating? I think in, in two things, really. One is her immense character. She's an absolute um, belief in her ability to learn. She never said never, despite the fact that she had no opportunities. I contrast her with myself. We have many similarities and many differences. Um, I'm also a singer. I've also got a, a, a brother who's an astronomer, although not the astronomer royal, but who was a huge inspiration to me. And in, in also in, my, in music as well. He's also a musician. So um, I can kind of identify with her, with her singing. Um, but also, as I've got older, I've developed my interest in astronomy. I'm my particular interest is in moons rather than comets. That's a real passion for me. So she was really frustrated by her domestic drudgery and the limited role for women, particularly of her class. She was born into very, very modest surroundings. She certainly wasn't privileged in any way. I've got several science degrees and I take them for granted. I never had to ask my father or my brothers or my husband's uh, whether I could could or couldn't do something. I've had complete autonomy in my choice of career direction, my choice of qualification. I didn't have to struggle against kind of class stereotypes or gender stereotypes to, you know, to enable me to do that. Um, she clearly didn't suffer fools. She was very, very determined and showed great perseverance. And she had this absolute desire to be useful. So a great frustration in her latter years was that she felt her body was failing her. She still had this sharp, acute mind. And she just felt that her body was letting her down, particularly when her sight started to go. So she had this burning ambition to be in independent. Um, I think she deeply resented the lack of opportunity that she had and the control that her brothers held over her, benevolently from William's point of view, but her eldest brother um, originally gave her a, a terrible life until William rescued her. So, you know, to the similarities, but also the contrast. Uh, uh, make a particularly an inspiration to me I'd love to have met her I'd love to have one of my dream dinner party guests <laughs> See, it's interesting though that for women of her era who were interested in in the natural world you know there seems to have been sort of two ways they could go you know you either did um, sort of botany and illustration which was a very popular uh, way for women to get into science or astronomy and astronomy has always been very um, welcoming and still is very welcoming of amateur um, astronomers and you can still make valuable contributions to our, our scientific knowledge as an amateur astronomer now. Absolutely and you know lots of amateurs do have access to remote telescopes so it's not necessarily around having wonderful equipment on your own doorstep in, in, a, in a dark sky site so some fabulous imaging can be done using remote telescopes and I know certainly friends of mine are involved in that so um, and I, I in many ways I envy the dark skies one of, one of my favourite ways of being an astronomer because I, I, unlike Caroline I'm not a night Towel. I'm not natural. I'm a I'm a, an early morning person generally. So, so one of my favourite ways of doing astronomy is camping and or going to dark sky sites where we can see amazing, amazing stars formations without the, the without telescopes, but um, but also amazing uh, visions with them away from the the kind of the big city smog. That actually in in the 1700s and 1800s there was. And there were good skies for astronomy. So hence, uh, most of the discoveries were made then. What do you think has the, been the lasting part of her legacy? I think in many ways, once there was a huge myth surrounding Caroline as this handmaiden to William. And in many ways, she perpetuated that herself. She sometimes said, you know, I did nothing that a, a well-trained puppy dog could have done. Um, but And then in many ways, was very self-deprecating and, and, and played down her role in, in William's success. 
But we actually know an awful lot about her because she was a prolific diarist and letter writer. She was a wonderful correspondent. So actually reading through her correspondence and her memoirs gives a wonderfully vivid picture of both society in that hundred year stretch and also as well as scientific developments. Although she was born into very modest backgrounds, by the time she came to the end of her life, she was sated by royalty, scientific uh, circles herself. She was, you know, immensely respected. Had a fascinating range of friends and acquaintances who she'd write to and uh, was very, very kind of up to date on what was going on in the world so I mean, and also some of the diaries were real minutiae around you know kind of arguing with the butcher or whatever but again it gives this wonderful snapshot of of, of, of a real flavor of what life was around was like in those days um amazing lady yeah absolutely and I think it what's fascinating and what I think's really truly impressive is with the women's contributions were quite often claimed by men whether that was a relative or someone else you you do have these these women who were doing incredible work but just didn't get any recognition and she did she did get recognition for her work which was highly unusual yeah she was an old lady by the time she did but yes she very much did yeah yes and, and that was wonderful i mean she her salary was 50 pounds a year quite modest but um it was so precious to her to be earning her own living rather than um just being kind of that also the housekeeper of William's household up until the point he got married which was quite late in life so in many ways she lost quite a bit of status when William married his wife Mary and it was quite an acrimonious relationship initially but although the women eventually came very close friends and she was devoted to to their son but she suddenly found a huge loss of status as the head of William's household um, and had to kind of work um, or live in, you know, the kind of the, the observatory rather than in, as he set up home with his new wife and child. That must have been really difficult for her, you know, to have been really central to his life for so long and then suddenly being replaced i can imagine it was it was very difficult i think later on she regretted perhaps some of the things she'd said about mary and as i said they did become good friends and and i'm sure probably the birth of, of young john was the catalyst for that although that's only an assumption um but uh and you know they, they were very close and she uh, devoted to john to john's wife and his family um and corresponded with them all right up until her death so, you know, we, we, we do get a real flavour of, of that strong affection. Um, although she never returned to England, John would visit her in Hanover. And I think she probably regretted leaving. I think it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction after William's death. Although, as I said, she was entertaining the King of Prussia well into her 90s. So she was um, quite fated when she was over there. She had some notoriety. Absolutely astonishing character. And, and you know, her, her contributions are incredibly impressive so thank you so much for telling us about caroline herschel well i encourage anybody to read as much as they can about it because it really really is fascinating but thank you very much for having me talk to you uh it's been a pleasure thanks thank you very much bye-bye thanks to hillary for telling us about the groundbreaking work of caroline herschel you can find out more about both hillary and caroline on our website at findingada.com slash podcast. Now for a small announcement. After 20 episodes, the time has come to put the Ada Lovelace Day podcast on hiatus. Our mission is to inspire and support girls and women in STEM. And in 2018, we have some big projects coming up that are going to demand quite a bit of our time. So a final thank you to our sponsor, Arm, for their support of this podcast over the last 20 months. And thanks also to our editor, Andrew Marks, whose help has been invaluable. You can still find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher, where you can delve through our archives. And you can keep up to date with what we're doing via Twitter, where we are at Finding Ada, and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Ada Lovelace Day. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Twitter or Facebook. <laughs>